Welcome to Antibodies. This is our 12th episode in the Immunology 101 series, a segment where we teach the fundamentals of immunology. Joining me today is Jetin from the University of Florida, and I am Natalie from the City of Hope Comprehensive Cancer Center. So how are you doing? I'm good. How are you today? Oh, life is good. Thank you so much. So uh, in our last episode, we talked about B-cell development in the spleen, so uh, I, I think altogether we have covered quite a bit on the adaptive immunity side. So today we're changing gears to pull our focus towards what you may consider even more important than an adaptive immunity for an organism's survival, which is the innate immune system. And that's something so inherently important to your safety that you probably never even think about it. Like, I know I don't. <laughs> yeah, true. Nobody's so. thinking about innate immunity. Yeah, right? <laughs> well, have you got a joke for us? Yes. Oh, you shouldn't say that. That is a joke. Oh. People expect it. <laughs> I blew it. I blew it. <laughs> okay, here, here, here it comes. You ready? Okay. Okay. Why did the prisoner never fall sick? Uh, uh, why? He had great inmate immunity. Oh. <laughs> Wait, was that this is bad? why we don't hang out, Jen. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> it wasn't that bad. I'm really sorry. Oh, yeah. <laughs> You're good. Okay. So are you ready to learn more about the preface about autoimmune, uh, innate immunity and everything? Yeah, hit me with it. Okay. A lot of immunological research, as we know of, is performed on vertebrates, mostly because humans are vertebrates and we like to research things that are relevant to us. And the vertebrate immune system is more advanced compared to the invertebrate immune system. With that, let's talk about the vertebrates. These animals are protected by two unique but interconnected groups of the immune system. One of them is the adaptive system, which we have learned about pretty extensively in these past few episodes. This group includes T and B cells and takes some time to mount an immune response to an invader and are more specific to that invader. The second faction is the innate system, which is made up of lots of different types of defenses, not just in the form of specialized cells, and is not really specific to any invader, but to whole groups of pathogens, including bacteria, viruses, and fungi. The innate immune system is probably the most ancient and primitive type of immune system that is present in all multicellular plants and animals. It's the adaptive immune system that evolved much later in vertebrate animals. In contrast to adaptive immune system, the innate system can mount an immune response very quickly to an invader. Hey, so if primitive organisms didn't have an adaptive immune system, how did they even survive against specific threats? The answer to that again is the innate immunity. Believe it or not, the innate system is capable enough of getting rid of most of these threats we encounter in our everyday life. And that is why we are going to focus on the innate immune system today. The innate system includes a lot of different shields and attackers against a pathogen. The first line of defense is the anatomical barriers, like your skin, for example, they keep harmful bacteria, fungi, and viruses out of your body. 
an added layer of protection is provided by chemical barriers. Again, taking skin as an example, the skin has an acidic pH, which creates a hostile environment for pathogens to grow. If a pathogen makes it across the physical and chemical barriers, like if you were to have a cut, within minutes, proteins bind and exert both antimicrobial effects and coat the entire pathogen to alert other innate defenses like phagocytic cells so that they could eat these pathogens up and kill them. During this intense battle of pathogen versus innate immune system, you will typically see swelling and pain at the cut of the site, which you must all be familiar with, indicating that inflammation is occurring. Oh, so the swelling during a cut or infection is just my immune cells flooding the area? Absolutely correct. That is what that is. Most of the time, the pathogen's life cycle stops right there. But in some cases, a pathogen can over overcome even these innate defenses. And that's when the crosstalk between the innate and adaptive immune system is so important. All of the fighting and alerting that the innate system was doing during the battle ex is exactly what will help the adaptive immune system to prepare for the fight later on in the pathogen's life cycle. This is exactly why the innate and adaptive systems are complementary and both rely on each other for their function. In this episode, we'll be talking about all of these innate mechanisms in more detail, including how anatomical barriers all over your body keep pathogens out, and the importance of epithelia, how then how antimicrobial pr proteins and peptides function, and the role of cellular and effector mechanisms in destroying evading pathogens. That's pretty cool. Well, can you tell us, let's, let's start out with the anatomical barriers? Sure, yeah, anatomical barriers will become the first, first line of defense for us. A barrier is a structure or material that blocks the movement or entry of something. During the medieval times, or as recent as 2016, walls were considered an effective mechanism in keeping <laughs> outsiders at bay. That <laughs> would be an anatomical barrier. For multicellular organisms like us, the skin is a form of anatomical barrier and is considered the first and most important line of defense against pathogens because they are that literal physical structure that blocks their entry. While I give the example of skin being an anatomical barrier blocking the entry of harmful bacteria into the body, it should be noted that physical barriers like this also exist on anything inside our body that connects the body to the uh, external world. The lining of your stomach, the respiratory tract, the urogenital tracts, for example, are all in contact with the exterior. And so anatomical barriers here are incredibly important shields to pathogens. But these barriers are more than just passive covers. They have physical and mechanical processes that actively get rid of pathogens and they produce activating molecules and themselves have antimicrobial activity. We can divide the anatomical barriers into two subcategories, the epithelial barriers and the chemical barriers. Let's talk about the epithelial barriers first. Can you define the term epithelium first? Yeah, sure. The term epithelium is used to signal the 
uh, it's, it's the common term to denote the outermost layer of any organ. For example, the epidermis of the skin, that thin layer of tissue lining or covering our lungs, kidneys, or the inside of our nasal cavity. All of that is epithelium. One of the functions of these epithelia is to act as a barrier function, and that's where the epithelial barrier name comes from. Uh, Natalie, can you tell us more about the epithelial barriers? Yeah, sure. Well, let's talk about like specifically how these epithelial barriers protect us. So the skin's epithelial layer, the epidermis, is composed of really tightly packed dead skin cells that function as a waterproof coating on the body. So like you probably notice if you spill water on yourself, it all just drips off. And there's also the lower dermis layer that contains the hair follicles, like sweat glands, and even more immune cells like dendritic cells and phagocytes. In simple words, the skin is tough and makes it quite difficult for microorganisms to get through because of how tightly packed the layers are. The epithelial layers lining the respiratory, gastrointestinal, and urogenital tract are equally as packed because the epithelial cells here are bound by something called tight junctions, again, making it very difficult for any invader to squeeze through cells and enter the body. But there's more to these barriers than just tightly packed cells. In the respiratory tract, the synchronized movement of hair-like projections of the cell membrane that we call cilia physically drive microorganisms out of the lungs. That's why you cough. Then many of the epithelial cells and some other specialized cells can make secretions in the form of mucus, urine, tears, and milk. These secretions have incredible antimicrobial function. So like the flow of urine gets rid of bacteria in the urinary tract all the time. In the stomach, the the acidic pH and the mucus and the overpopulation of healthy gut bacteria also help to keep harmful bacteria out. Hey, before we move on, I was wondering how do pathogens overcome this epithelial barrier? From what you have described, to me it looks solid enough to keep everything out and then you add those secretions over this. I cannot think of a way how pathogens would get around it. That's a really good point. It is indeed pretty solid to keep pretty much every pathogen out and that's why a breach in a barrier, like a cut on your skin, is just a feast for pathogens, because they no longer have to deal with the barrier and they can get in pretty easily. For other pathogens, like influenza, these carry certain proteins on their surface that allow them to really tightly bind our epithelial cells so they don't get swept out as easily. Of course, those pesky pathogens have tricks up their sleeves. Now they always have a trick up their sleeve, and that's why we need an additional layer of defenses, the chemical barriers. Jatin, would you like to talk about this topic? Sure. So after the incredible epithelial barrier comes the chemical barriers. A crucial point about the epithelial cells that helps in getting rid of pathogens is their ability to secrete or make or produce a broad spectrum of antimicrobial proteins, as well as even smaller protein fragments that we called peptides. The skin and other epithelial linings in the body secrete enzymes. Lysozyme is one such enzyme found in saliva and tears, for example, and it directly breaks down peptidoglycan of bacterial cell walls, effectively lysing or rupturing the whole bacteria. Another protein, uh, antimicrobial protein called psoriasin, is very potent against E. coli on this, that are found on the surface of the skin. 
Then we have lots of other antimicrobial proteins like lectins that bind to harmful bacteria in the intestines and form a sort of coating to prevent these bacteria from sticking to the host's epithelial cells. Apart from antimicrobial proteins, our cells also make antimicrobial peptides, which have a very similar function, but are generally smaller than proteins, usually less than 100 amino acids long. These peptides are a part of an ancient innate immunity found in invertebrates, plants, and even some fungi. The most common antimicrobial peptides are alpha and beta defensins, and this class of molecules called catholicidins. Some of these peptides can disrupt bacterial cell walls. And the good thing about these peptides is that they're even small enough to attach intracellularly to viruses. Let me tell you something very cool here. There is a type of catholicidin called LL37. LL37 has two functions. First, it is antimicrobial, so it kills bacteria, but it doesn't stop there. It has a second function. It binds to the bacterial nucleic acids, stabilizes them, and delivers them to the pattern recognition receptors to alarm our immune system. Hey, that's a great segue for me to tell you about PRRs. So uh, think of it this way. Animal bodies have been assaulted by the same sorts of threats for millennia, like bacteria and viruses. So bacteria and viruses are substantially different from animal cells, and they tend to have certain patterns associated with them that for thousands and thousands of years have always been associated with those pathogens. So we call these patterns pathogen-associated molecular patterns, that's P-A-M-P, or PAMPs for short. To keep up in the molecular arms race against pathogens, our cells evolved something called pattern recognition receptors, or PRRs, that look out for these PAMPs and initiate crucial cellular responses once they sense them. Some PRRs hang out on the surface of the cell, while others hang out in the endosomes and cytosol to sense intercellular threats. Now, these PRRs can sense both PAMPs from foreign threats and DAMPs, which is damage-associated molecular patterns, and these come from damage of host tissue that will result in a heightened immune response. To go back to what Jenton was talking about, that catholicidin LL37 is also alerting the immune system by signaling down to the PRRs, therefore helping us ramp up our defenses in case we are facing a more serious bacterial invasion. I sometimes think of the pattern recognition receptors as similar to how if we were to be, let's say, if a mosquito bites our neck, you don't think twice before just slapping it, right? You have a reflex mm -hmm. action. Um, I think of PRRs as the immune system's reflex action. It's so quick and it's so obvious that they don't have to even think about it. There is no adaptive immunity required for all this, right? Yeah, yeah. I have a question to ask. I can understand that our immune system would like to raise the alarm when we see a PAMP because it signals a possible pathogenic invasion. But I cannot understand why DAMPs or dead cell material should cause the same reaction. Because aren't our cells constantly dying and getting replaced? Wouldn't that produce immune response to everything? Like when thymocytes die during negative selection and similar other events? Oh yeah, great question. So um, the answer to your question actually lies in the nuance between programmed cell death and necrosis. 
So you're right that there are billions of cells being turned over, dying, and getting replaced, but that's part of the homeostasis. So these cells typically die due to a programmed cell death um, where they don't vomit out their cellular contents. Instead, they just like pack up their little organelles in an organized function and just kind of like shrivel up and wait for a phagocyte to remove them. Very few, if any, uh, damps are produced in this process. On the other hand, necrosis is a form of really brutal cell death, which is typically induced by agents like toxins or cellular damage. So during necrosis, the cells do spit out their contents, thereby generating damps. So it suggests that there's something like really wrong, like maybe a virus is causing these cells to lice, or you got a cut, or there's definitely something that the body needs to respond to. Oh, thanks a lot for that. So pretty much all of the myeloid lineage your macrophages, neutrophils, dendritic cells, et cetera, et cetera, and the lymphocytes, your BSTs, and natural killers express PRRs, but other cell types that commonly get in contact with outside threats also express them, like your epithelial cells on the skin and in the mucosal tissues, or the endothelial cells lining your blood vessels. So now there's plenty of types of um, pattern recognition receptors, and they all do different things, and they express in different milieus, so I'm going to give you a quick rundown of like the iconic one, which is the TLR. So TLR is short for toll-like receptor. Um, these are the iconic PRRs and the first to be discovered and characterized. Um, they're actually named um, from a gene discovered in Drosophila, which is fruit flies. So uh, toll is actually German for weird, because when you deleted these in the fruit flies, they had a severe developmental defect. But um, one thing that they found was that the toll gene and ones like it were important for protecting against infection. So actually discovery and characterization of TLRs has led to two separate Nobel Prizes, one for Christine Nussenlein-Wolhard, Eric Weishaus, and Edward B. Lewis in 1995, and another in 2011 for Jules Hoffman. This gives so, th this uh, part shows you how important research in Drosophila is. Even things that we don't think are directly related to the Im immune system, they some somehow they come around and you can connect them. Yeah, yeah. So also, don't feel bad if your model organism isn't a mouse. Like yeah. you're probably doing pretty important research. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, there are actually 13 toll-like receptor genes in mice, uh, in humans, sorry, and uh, mice, and they all have a very, very similar structure. TLRs kind of look like a fish hook, so they've got, you know, that little hooky part, and then they have a nugget on the other side of the receptor that they're on, and this is called a TER domain, and that stands for toll slash IL-1 receptor, um, and that's because of its homology or similarity with the IL-1 receptor. So... TLRs are found both extruding from the cell surface and also into endosomes and lysosomes. TLR4 specifically is interesting in that it hangs out in both places, whereas most of the other TLRs uh, usually only localize to one membrane. So the hook part of the TLR is made up of protein regions called leucine-rich repeats, or LRRs, and those are the parts that physically bind and recognize PAMPs or DAMPs. So these guys recognize a wide variety of PAMPs. For instance, TLR4 binds lipopolysaccharides from gram-negative bacteria, whereas other TLRs could bind dsRNA from viruses, mannins from fungi, flagellin from bacteria, and all sorts of other conserved PAMPs. When the TLR does bind its ligand within the LRR, 
The TLR proteins dimerize, meaning that these two cytoplasmic domains come close together. The interaction of their TER regions then triggers a series of innate immune responses. Like any innate response, TLRs have the capacity to generate generalized inflammation. All TLRs signal downstream to activate the transcription factor NF-kappa-B, which like, we could probably make a whole episode about NF-kappa-B because it's so important. NF-kappa-B then activates the expression of tons of innate inflammatory genes. Just for our listeners, I would like to expand that NF-kappa-B stands for nuclear factor kappa-B. And Natalie, I have a question for you. How do TLRs evoke the right response to the right pathogen? I understand that they are specific in the sense that they only bind to particular pathogenic products. But is there a difference in the response that they elicit from the cell once they bind to these variable things? Yeah, actually. Um, to grant specificity, many TLRs signal through pathways that are unique to that TLR. So the cell knows to respond in the right way. But um, this is a very serious question you asked. Uh, buckle up, because we are going to get in some of the most dreaded territory of immunology right now. And that's the cell signaling pathways. Oh no, it's a cell signaling pathways. <laughs> I strongly believe that when immunology books introduce the topic cell signaling for the first time, they should have some disclaimer like 18 plus content <laughs> or <laughs> not for the faint hearted, just to give a heads up to the readers. <laughs> Dude, yeah, for real. <laughs> Um, I don't think we would be diving into cell signaling already, but I guess if we have to talk about it someday anyway, why not do it right now while discussing TLRs? Yeah, let's let's do it. We are strong. We are capable. We can do it. Okay. <laughs> Out of the many signaling pathways that do exist, um, let, let's focus on just the TLR signaling today. So the protein adapter of a particular TLR's TER domain, that's the little nugget inside dictates what happens next. So I'm gonna tell you about two. They're TRIF and MITI88. So TRIF is spelled T-R-I-F and MITI88. M-Y-D-8-8. Natalie, you said you're gonna talk about adapters. Can you first define what an adapter means? Yeah, for sure. Think of an adapter like a puzzle piece connecting to uh, two other pieces together. These typically don't have enzymatic activities themselves, but they can recruit other enzymes which are required for the signal to propagate. If you want to personify an adapter, think of it like that friend of, you, of yours who invites you to parties or game nights or just hanging out. You might not actually like this friend or you have no personal connections to them, but you need this person because without them, you would just be lonely watching Netflix at home and wondering if anything meaningful will ever occur in your life. How come all the questions I ask you turn into the deep and dark conversations about life. You did that to me in B cells when we were talking about B cells and now you're doing it again. Yeah, it just comes naturally to me. <laughs> it's innate. <laughs> uh, anyway, now that you guys know what an adapter is, let's talk about Mighty 88, which is myeloid differentiation factor 88. So most TLRs use it, uh, definitely all of the plasma membrane bound ones and even some of those in the endosome. So let's say your plasma membrane TLR2 got tripped and received a signal, maybe from a peptidoglycan from a gram-positive bacterium, you know. Uh, TLR2 actually heterodimerizes with uh, TLR1 in this case, and this will cause the recruitment and activation of MITI88. 
is this dimerization required for the adapter to bind? Yeah, actually, yeah. It's only when those TLRs dimerize that the binding pocket will appear for MITE88. So MITE88 is going to turn on both the NF-kappa-B and the MAP-K pathways by recruiting first IRAC1 and IRAC4, and that is spelled I-R-A-K. So IRAC stands for interleukin-1 receptor-associated kinase 1. IRAC4 is, you know, the same, but it's 4 at the end. And what is the purpose of a kinase here? Why would this adapter, MIDE88, want to recruit a kinase? So consider that there are many players that act in a cell signaling pathway. We've talked about the receptor, which in this case is the TLR. Then we talked about the adapter. So then there's going to be the kinase. The kinase phosphorylates other proteins. That means it adds a little phosphate group. The phosphate group is heavily charged so that when it's added to the protein, it changes the conformation. Like the protein has to physically change shape to adjust to this heavy charge that has just been attached to it. As a result of this conformation change, it changes how it behaves. Shape influences function. So, for example, when some transcription factors are phosphorylated, they become active. Similarly, even kinases themselves can get phosphorylated and become active. Uh, and become active. In the world of cell signaling, think of phosphorylation as a way of passing the baton in a relay race. This baton is carried on the surface of the cell all the way to the nucleus to successfully propagate a signal. Thanks. Thanks for that explanation. Yeah, no problem. So coming back, focus on IRAC1. So after recruitment by Mighty88, IRAC1 phosphorylates itself and this in turn activates the protein TRAF6, and that's spelled T-R-F. Oh, T-R-A-F-6. Now that is the abbreviated form of TNF, receptor associated factor 6, but just to keep things simple, we'll call it TRAF6. This is the scaffold, the anchor where all the next proteins will hang out together. Hey, that's another term you just mentioned here. What is a scaffold? Is this the same as an adapter? I mean, scaffolds are proteins that are kind of similar to adapters in the way that they help recruit other proteins. However, what separates protein scaffolds from adapters is that these depend on phosphorylation or modification to start recruiting. Also, scaffolds can form giant complexes that a measly adapter can only dream of. Scaffolds are so important for propagating and regulating signals that slight changes in their expression or activity can actually have big effects on the outcome of a signaling network. So, like receptors, adapters, and kinases, scaffolds have a very distinct job to do in a signaling pathway. Do you guys want to know a cool fact about scaffolds? Yes. What's really cool is that they can actually integrate multiple pathways. Uh, they act like a crossroads between these uh, communication pathways that makes them super important for cell signaling. A good way to think of scaffolds is like a communication hub where a lot of crosstalk can take place. Well, and that sounds like it's an important point for a cell to have. Yes, it is. So now that TRAF6 has been phosphorylated by the IRAX, TRAF6 will do its scaffolding job and bring in all the other proteins. So next in line is TAC1, that's T-A-K-1, and some of its friends that help TAC1 get there. All of these proteins, TAC1 and friends, are currently hanging out with the TRAF6, and you know who else is hanging out near TRAF6? IRAC1. So now TAC1 can get phosphorylated by IRAC1. It's as if the TRAF6 is essentially bringing substrates of IRAC1 
in proximity to make irx1 job easier so that it doesn't have to find its substrate in all this massiveness of a cell yeah absolutely correct uh, i told you guys it's a communi communication hub its job is to get those interacting partners together let me tell you that another name for TAC1 is mitogen activated protein kinase 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 7 or MAPK37. Uh, this enzyme is capable of starting a whole new set of signaling, which is called the MAPK signaling pathway. So that's how TRAF6 is integrating multiple pathways. Yep. So apart from signaling through the MAPK pathway, TAC1 also plays a role in the NF-kappa-B pathway, which we still haven't even finished talking about. So the phosphorylated TAC1 is now an activated kinase itself. As it is activated, it is going to go and phosphorylate its target, which is the IKK complex, which is made up of several proteins that we will admit for now. So um, IKK, or inhibitor of kappa-B kinase, is, as the name suggests, a kinase itself. Therefore, it is going to go to its subsequent target. Can you guys guess what the target of IKK is? First, I want to highlight how all the kinases are activating other kinases for them to activate other kinases. This is yeah, it's this, like... this is funny. Okay, can you tell me what is the target for IKK? Uh, it's right in the name. Inhibitor of kappa B kinase or IKK phosphorylates the inhibitor of kappa B. That makes sense. So what is this inhibitor of kappa B doing? The inhibitor of kappa B, or I-kappa B, as the name suggests, is an inhibitor of nuclear factor kappa B, or NF-kappa B. Uh, uh, NF-kappa B. So imagine I-kappa B as your clingy, toxic ex who won't let you go and just pulls you down from ever being successful or getting anything done until the IKK phosphorylates the I-kappa B such that it has to let go of the NF-kappa B. So now you, the NF-kappa B, are free to go live its life, do its job, which in this case is to go to the nucleus and direct the RNA polymerase to go transcribe some genes that will make this cell become activated and make a lot of cytokines to pull the attention of nearby immune cells. So... Um, another term for all of these different signaling components downstream of the receptor uh, is called secondary messengers. So can you guess why we might need so many second messengers? Uh, no, I can't guess. Why do we need them? <laughs> well, I can, I can give you two reasons. So first, these proteins help amplify the signal so that even one stimulated TLR can now seriously upregulate a whole slew of proteins. So think like a phone tree. If I tell two people, and you tell two people to tell two people, and they tell two people to tell two people, pretty soon we have a whole lot of people that know the thing that I told them. Second, it provides a multi-layer way of regulating the pathway. Believe it or not, uncontrolled signaling like this can cause way more damage than is helpful. So therefore, it's required that our cells regulate this so that the signal only propagates when it is absolutely needed. Since the pathway depends on like a gazillion things to fall in line to take effect, the cell can reduce the activity of any of these proteins to fine tune this response. Oh, so now that we think about it, the cell is no longer a membrane bound blob with some organelles. It's actually a fully functional computer capable of thinking for itself and responding to various stimuli. And if it has a hundreds of these networks that run inside it, 
Yeah, absolutely. It's so cool, right? It is. Can we have a quick revision about the pathway just so that I don't forget because these pathways honestly are difficult to remember. There's a lot of alphabets involved. Yeah, right? Okay, let's do it. So first, the TLR receives its ligand, which is, you know, a damp or a pamp, and then it dimerizes. That means two of them come close together. The dimerized TLR then opens up a binding pocket for the adapter protein called Mighty88 to attach. Mighty88 then recruits IRAC1 and IRAC4 kinases. These kinases aid in the phosphorylation of TRAF6, which now makes this a big deal because TRAF6 is a signaling hub that can activate multiple pathways. One of the things TRAF6 brings is uh, TAC1 and some of its friends. As TAC1 gets in close proximity with TRAF6, the IRAC1, which is still hanging out nearby, phosphorylates TAC1. So this allows TAC1 to go ahead and phosphorylate IKK, or inhibitor of kappa B kinase, which, as I mentioned before, phosphorylates the inhibitor of kappa B, also called I-kappa B. If you remember from my story before, I-kappa B is just a clingy X, and it won't let NF-kappa B go do its job. So once that has been phosphorylated uh, from IKK, this is going to help I-kappa B get away from NF-kappa B, and NF-kappa B is now free to go do its job in the nucleus. Hooray! We did it! We covered the pathway! Covered this pathway. It takes it, it takes so much to relay one signal from that TLR to the nucleus. Yeah, in this pathway, yeah. we had one adapter, one scaffold, and a ton of kinases. Yeah, and to be honest with you, there are uh, more proteins involved than that, which I have mentioned. But uh, I think it would be maybe too many details for a podcast. If anyone needs to know more than this, the chances are that, uh, you know, they're a researcher in this field, in which case it's better to look at primary literature and reviews for a thorough view of this pathway. Hey, I'm, I'm glad we talked about this pathway at last. You also did mention about another adapter called TRIF. Uh, what's up with that? There is actually a whole different pathway that branches off of TRIF, but you know what? I, I'm tired. I think it would be better to take this TRIF on in another episode. I think we've covered a lot for one episode. So, uh, Jatin, can you summarize the details for us? Yeah, sure. Also, just imagine the diversity of these signals. There are different receptors through which different signals emerge. There are different proteins that signal. There are different adapters. There are isoforms of these proteins that do so much different. Just the variety is insane. There are microRNAs that regulate TRAF6 and IRAC4. Oh, yeah. MicroRNAs, <laughs> epigenetics, the accessibility to histones, all of that is just so complicated. I, I honestly feel like there is no way a cell could have developed all of this spontaneously. I think there is a conspiracy here. <laughs> it's like somebody <laughs> made this. There's no way billions of years gets us to this kind of fine tuning. But anyway, apart from conspiracy theories, let's talk about what we have gone through in this episode. We have two types of immune systems, an innate system that we are born with and an adaptive system that develops as we grow up and encounter threats. On the evolutionary timescale, the innate system goes way back to invertebrates, uh, which uh, and the emergence of the adaptive immunity is relatively new. The first line of defense in the innate immune system includes the anatomical barriers, 
these are two kinds of anatomical barriers the epithelial barriers and the chemical barriers which protect us from invading pathogens then there are receptors with the ability to recognize a wide range of uh, structures that are foreign to our body and there's a lot more that we are going to cover in the next part of this series so that'll be all for the summary natalie yeah this would be a great point to wrap up our discussion. So uh, thank you, Jatin, for this wonderful discussion. Um, for our audience, if you are interested to know more about our science communication endeavors, please check out antibodies.org. You can find our blogs, journal clubs, and podcasts there. If you have any questions or suggestions, you can email us at antibodies1 at gmail.com. With that, I am your host, Natalie, signing off until we meet again. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.